Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mead Feed. My name is Whitney Mead. I'm so glad you're joining me. Today, we're going to be taking a little bit of a deviation from our normal Mead Feed episodes where we talk about current culture and politics, and we're going to be taking a deep dive into a segment of history because I feel like this is a very important lesson for us to pay attention to right now. Um, We are going to be talking about the Kulaks. Have you ever heard of them before? I hadn't. Um, I will be the first person to admit to you that I was not a history lover when we were in high school and college. I just, history was not my jam. I was a communications major. I was more interested in English and journalism and that kind of thing. But history, it was Western Civ. Just glossed over it as quickly as possible, and that's all I had to do. Thank you very much, Clemson. But... We're talking about this today because I was just kind of scrolling around on the internet earlier this week and I found this clip of Jordan Peterson, who I adore. I just think he's brilliant. And he started talking about the idea of privilege. And recently on my TikTok account in particular, I've been getting lots of white privilege and privilege just dripping in the comments. And so... It just was on my brain. It was on my heart. And I decided that I needed to look into it a little bit and just kind of explore it on my own and found this Jordan Peterson clip just randomly. And it really blew my mind. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. I want to talk about first the idea of genocide. And genocide you obviously have a visceral reaction when you hear the word. It's it's scary, and it's tragic, and it's a um, it is a scar on our history. It's awful, but you have to ask yourself this question: How do we, as a world? as a community, as a nation, how do nations, political movements get to the point where they're willing to commit genocide? It's a great question. It's a hard question. It's a question that you have to wrestle with. And what I've discovered, especially through the story of the Kulaks, the Kulaks, please forgive me if I mispronounce this throughout this podcast, um, is that the idea of privilege was weaponized against them. Let's talk about it. With the idea of privilege, the thought process is that there are two groups of people, two categories of people. You either have your victims and you have your oppressors. And, and it's a very black and white view of culture, which is very dangerous. There's lots of nuance to culture. Things aren't always so black and white. And to put yourself, to view yourself as a victim or as an oppressor, solidly in one camp or the other, is a dangerous place to be because I would like to suggest that You might be a victim in some situations, and you might be an oppressor in other situations. It just depends on the situation. But 
what was done to the kulaks is that their government weaponized their privilege against them. And it led to the genocide of an entire group of people. These overlords, these dictators, stirred up people against them as the privileged ones. And they were able to turn the entire culture against them and get away with genocide. So here's the story. In the 1920s, Stalin and the Soviets used class guilt as a means of political manipulation. So the Kulaks were recently emancipated serfs. They were farmers, and they were in the Ukraine area. Now, the Ukraine has always been known as very fertile, hardy farmland, and these serfs knew how to farm. And so they would buy up a small amount of land. They would build a home, maybe a brick house, a nice house. They would buy some animals, some cows, some horses, and then they would employ people to work the land. And they made beautiful, lovely, profitable towns and villages. I mean, I was looking at videos earlier today and just the the landscape of Ukraine was just gorgeous, and you could tell that it was a, from what I could see in the photographs at least, the, the culture, the community, everything was thriving. The economy was thriving. But Stalin wanted control. Stalin wanted control of it all, and he wanted to be able to take as much of it as he possibly could so that he could push all of these resources and sell them to the surrounding countries outside of the area. So this communist government started to plant seeds in people's minds and hearts about the kulaks, and they started calling them parasites. These were, they were a very targeted, focused group of people. They were, had a very strict um, definition of, of what made you a kulak. You were a farm owner. It didn't have to be like a huge, you didn't have to be like some crazy wealthy farm owner, but just someone who produced food with a few farm animals and people who worked for you. And then all of a sudden, there was this Kulak class of people. And if you were in that class, according to Stalin, you were automatically guilty. So this was his way of controlling the people. So these Kulaks were actually gathered up. They would go around towns, and they would turn the townspeople against the Kulaks, and they would gather them up and put them on trains and send them off to Siberia, to freeze to death, or they would literally come into the town and shoot them on the spot just for being land-owning farmers. Like, <laughs> that's it. Now, they definitely, from what I've read, were not, um, they were not supportive of Stalin's regime, but... Is that a reason to kill someone? A reasonable person would say no. 
It's estimated that between three to six million Ukrainians as a result of all of these farm owners being shipped off and killed. Three to six million Ukrainians starved to death because food production ceased and what food production was happening, Stalin came through and gathered it all up and took it out of their land. This was a time called the Holodomor, and it is, you can barely even speak to Ukrainians about it now because many of their grandparents were children during this time frame, and they remember it vividly, and it was, it was awful. It's awful, and it was, it's not even discussed like we discuss the Holocaust now. Like, it is that big of a blight in human history. But there was a game plan to what Stalin was doing. The first thing that he did was he sent his leadership into these towns, and they would find, like, the town drunk. They would, found, they would find the guy who they could get in, his, get in his brain, and they could plant these seeds of victimization in his brain, and they'd say, you know you sit in this bar all day long and, you know, you're drinking all day, but, you know, John down the road, he owns that farm. And all those people who work for him really need to be making more money. And he's really robbing them blind because they're working for him for basically nothing. And, I mean, he's obviously the thief of the town. And they would they'd plant these seeds of victim. You're the victim. You're the victim. And these guys would buy it, and then they would start talking to everybody else in the town. And then before you know it, the entire town would turn on these kulaks, and then it was that easy to round them up, put them on a train, send send them to Siberia. So there's actually a term for this. It's called dekulakization, Stalin's term. And then his next step was collectivization, where he gathered all of the farms and put the farms together into one big state-controlled farm. So say you had 80 different small farms. Now you have one huge state-controlled farm, and you put all the people to work, and then you really, really don't pay them anything. And then you don't even let them keep food after that. And if you find them with a few grains of food, you shoot them as being domestic terrorists, basically, which resulted in famine. I don't know why he thought this would work, but he did. I read this quote by Margaret Thatcher. I thought it was so important and so applicable to what we're facing right now. She said, socialist governments traditionally do make a financial mess. They always run out of other people's money. It's quite a characteristic of them. And then Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. If we look at the story of the Kulaks and how these political dictators planted seeds of jealousy and planted seeds of victimization to achieve a political end, do you hear the rhyme of history repeating itself right now? Because I do. 
the same storyline is going on in the United States right now. You can replace the word kulak with business owner, perhaps white male business owner, and those Marxist political leaders, those communist leaders like Stalin, maybe replace their names with people like Barack Obama or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or Maxine Waters. Think about the manipulation. I have no doubt that BLM was used to attempt to create a class war. And unfortunately, the majority of Americans are either too ignorant or too comfortable to recognize it. Everyone is scared to talk about it. No one is brave enough to talk it right, about it right now. And I think it's an important conversation to be had. I think it's important that we acknowledge as a society that we have been extremely manipulated by our government over the past few years. And I know everyone's kind of holding on and going, okay, what's next? What's going to happen next? I mean, you're in the middle of COVID and then all of a sudden BLM riots start to break out. Like the whole thing was almost too good to be true, right? Like it seemed too good to be true. It seemed very optimistic. And one of the things that I've noticed in the media especially, and this is my expertise, media, is that we are being told not to question the narrative. And that is the most dangerous place you can be. One of the things I've been asked a lot lately is, well, what are you going to do about it? Sure, you're reporting all this news, but what are you going to do about it? Baby, this is what I'm doing about it. <laughs> this, this is it. This is my sphere. What is your sphere? What is your sphere? Is it drawing lines in your business and saying we're not doing that? Is it having hard conversations with people in your life? Is it what does standing for freedom look like in your own life? Because if we don't, this is where we're going, y'all. I mean, I'm, I'm, history repeats itself. All we have to do is look backwards and see what happened. We are human beings. We are cyclical beings. Things move in cycles. So none of what's happening right now is new. So I really want to challenge you today. What does it look like to take a stand for your future? What does it take look like to take a stand for our kids and our grandchildren and that long-range vision that we as Americans never get right? We never get it right. We always wonder, like, why does China – tend to do so well in the long run because, baby, they've got long-range vision. They are looking at the long haul. We need to do the same thing. I wish I had an answer for what standing up looked like for you, and I know it's going to be individual for every single person. And it's okay and natural that we would all have different political opinions. That's what makes our country great.
But what I will not tolerate and what I'm standing for is class division and class divide, which leads to situations like the Kulaks. So thank you for joining me for today's episode. I hope I've given you some things to think about, and I will see you next time.